Turn to Luke chapter 7. You know, I usually choose the title of the message early in the week, and, and that facilitates printing and, and order of service and song choice and other things. I try to get that information out as quickly as possible. So on Monday I titled this message, Just Say the Word. So it is very much about the Word. But then after pouring over this passage throughout the week, uh, for several days, if I were to name it today, i just name it simply, I am not worthy. The, the profession of the centurion, I am not worthy. And Luke chapter 7, as we begin to look at it, it, it follows immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had just com, uh, completed that, and now he's walking back to Capernaum, walking into town. And uh, the Mount of Beatitudes where the Sermon on the Mount was given, it's about a mile as a crow flies away from Capernaum. So even with the winding road or the path, whatever it might have been as they descended into town, this was a relatively short trip. Keep that in mind. This was a short path, uh, but we're going to discover a very eventful path uh, today. Let's begin by reading our passage together beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by that centurion, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant him uh, this to him, for he loves our nation It was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and he was not far from the centurion's house, and the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed." For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such a great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. The word of the Lord. We find, as we mentioned previously, that the preaching by the Son of God is quickly followed up by the actions of the Son of God, right? He practices what he preaches. We spoke about that at length last week. Jesus was a man of compassion. He was a man of mercy. How could he have... Uh, preached on the Sermon of the Mount about be merciful as your Father who is in heaven is merciful, and that not demonstrate mercy Himself. It's a good reminder to us Christians. Matthew records large crowds. When you look at the account in Matthew, large crowds following Jesus on this short trip back into Capernaum. And He's uh, approached at that point by a leper. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 8. And that leper says to Jesus, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now imagine if Jesus had just preached about being merciful, yet was unwilling to make the man clean. But the crowds were watching Jesus. 
Matthew 8, verse 3, we're told Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left the man. Now folks, for all those who insist that all of the miracles that Jesus performed back then are available to us today, immediately the leper is cleansed. Think about that for a moment. Some of these faith preachers, if a leper were able to get up to the stage and get passed through security, which I'm sure he could, because hey, don't touch me, they'd be like, go ahead, you're not going to touch him. What would that faith healer do? You don't see those types of things today. They'd run in the other direction, a man covered with leprosy. Assertions often made that this leper that had come to Jesus, oh, he must have really had a great faith. Really great faith, an exceptional faith. Well, that theology gives credit to whom? The person, the leper, the individual is responsible for the healing. Does not give glory to God for the healing. Um, That would also leave parents, by the way, um, pretty desperate if they had a dying infant. An infant who himself can't express faith. What is the parent to do? And then people say, well, it it relies on the faith of the parents. Well then, if a child were to pass away, if that were true, where does that leave the heart of the parent? Seeing their child die, they take responsibility. I must not have had enough faith. Fortunately, as we've been studying through Luke over and over again, the crowds come, the many, many crowds of many types of diseases, many ailments, many different backgrounds, and when they come to Jesus, all of them are healed, regardless of their background. That is the power of Christ going out from Him. And, and a theology that, that implies that it's, it's dependent on you takes away from the glory of God, and it also kind of ignores the context of this incident we're looking at today, where as far as, as we're given information, the, uh, the servant, the slave that is in the centurion's household, he doesn't even ask. It's the centurion who asks on behalf of the slave. The servant's master who intervened for him. He intervened according to Matthew because the servant was experiencing paralysis. He was fearfully tormented or, or tortured. The, the word is used uh, quite often about much pain, torment and pain, tortured in pain, experiencing a lot of agony. And, and Luke's account suggests both the centurion and his servant, they were fearing for his life. They're fearing he was going to die, and and die soon. This was urgent. You know, folks, paralysis is is a common symptom of uh, poliomyelitis. Comes on very quickly. In fact, having visited with uh, Hazel Orgish here uh, in the last couple weeks, and she described at length when she was a young girl, and, and how her brother, her beloved brother, she cared for very much, and he was very special uh, uh, and taking care of her, he at 19 came down with polio on a Friday. He was dead on a Tuesday. That's how quickly it took her beloved brother out. He succumbed suddenly to polio. It's a very contagious disease. If you're not aware, it affects the brain, the spinal column. Um, 
causes headaches, fever, pain, vomiting. Many lead to death once it, once it manifests its, uh, its symptoms. You, even today, once the symptoms are, are present, there is, no, there is no treatment. It is what it is. You can just treat the symptoms. Hazel and, and their family immediately recognized, because this wasn't that uncommon in that day, some of you will remember this, they immediately recognized what it was. They knew what was going to happen. They knew it did not look good, even that he was likely going to die. And he died. Praise God, today we got the polio vaccine. In fact, there are only three countries in the world in 2014 that had any experience of the scourge of polio. If polio or a similar virus, it was the culprit in this story, The centurion and the slave knew there wasn't much time. Small window for getting help. Not only that, there probably isn't a treatment. Verse 2 suggests the centurion had a very high regard for this slave. Cared very much for him. And upon hearing about Jesus, he sent a delegation then to Jesus. In the ancient Roman world, this was common. Doesn't imply the centurion was disrespecting Jesus. Doesn't imply he's being impertinent. Doesn't imply that he's indifferent towards his servant. He, he cared about him very much. People who possessed authority in that world used this, used this commonly to reach other people. Delegations, sending a delegate on your behalf. And, and that becomes a very important lesson in our story, in our passage here today. And in the theology and the thinking of this centurion when we look at him about delegation, who who is a valid delegate, a a person or persons officially sent as ambassadors in in this world had the same authority as the person given the command. Same authority as the person they represented. In fact, Matthew acknowledges this cultural principle when you read the account in Matthew because Matthew records it as if uh, the centurion is right there present, although he wasn't. But the authority of the centurion was present in the people that he sent as his delegates. becomes very important to this passage as well. Um, in case you don't know already, you might not know uh, or have heard, a centurion was a Roman military official. He was in charge of a hundred men. That's why they called him a centurion. Historical records indicate uh, that these soldiers in a region like this in Galilee, surrounding Capernaum, they probably would have been Jews under the authority of the centurion. Probably would have been Jewish. They behaved as military, law enforcement for the region. The centurion was living amongst the Jews. He worked with the Jews. Uh, Our passage says that he loved the nation of Israel. He cared much for the nation. He had learned to love the Jews. So it's not odd that that his first delegation that he sends out is a Jew to go to Jews, or Jews to to go to Jesus. And verse 3 says, When he heard about Jesus, my impression is it suggests he heard Jesus was nearby. This is my impression. He had heard Jesus is nearby and he is returning to Capernaum. He may not have personally met Jesus, but he previously knew of Jesus. 
He knew of Jesus. The centurion himself had his home in the tiny town of Capernaum. Capernaum is a place where all the miracles took place in the synagogue and then immediately in Simon Peter's house. This is much earlier than the point we're at now. Capernaum is where Levi uh, or Matthew, the tax collector, where he put on the grand banquet, remember? In Capernaum. Pharisees were coming as far as from Jerusalem just to get a glimpse of Jesus. All of these healings that were going on in this town. You see where I'm coming from? Do you remember the clip that I put up, the photo of Capernaum here before the holidays? How small Capernaum was? It was a tiny town. A tiny town up in Galilee. It would have been a dereliction of duty, folks, for this Roman centurion to not know what's going on in his district. To have never heard about all of this ruckus that's going on. No, he had heard. That's just my opinion. He lived in the small town, but he heard Jesus was nearby. Jesus is coming. He's coming back to Capernaum, which was his adoptive hometown. And the slave suddenly fell so, fell so ill that the centurion's like, i got to do something now. This just, this just comes out of nowhere. So he talks to the elders, the Jewish elders, the elders of the synagogue, and he sent them as his delegation to Jesus first. This was the first delegation. They came to Jesus. They came not only imploring Jesus, it says they came earnestly imploring Jesus. Why? Why were they pleading with Jesus? Was it because the slave was dying? Is that the reason they give? No. No, their justification in verse 5 was because this Roman centurion loved the nation of Israel and he had even built them a synagogue. Well, that was their basis coming to Jesus. Not that a man's lying dying. Have mercy. We've got someone important you need to go to and see. By the way, it's the same synagogue that I also showed some pictures of up here uh, earlier on in this lesson. In this book. Uh, Archaeologists describe it as one of the more ornate synagogues in Galilee. It was one of the fancy ones that we're talking about here. It wasn't just a pole barn, folks. That was a nice synagogue. The centurion must have been a man of means. He must have been a man of great influence in order to get something like that done. He was a man who could get things done. So the Jewish elders, they were concerned that this man uh, be kept happy. He loved Israel. He built them a synagogue. Surely, Jesus, He is worthy. Oh, He's worthy for a visit. Shows their anemic theology. Very poor theology. Uh, They had learned it from the scribes and the Pharisees. That's who commonly taught in that synagogue. They learned it from the story uh, of that Pharisee that we saw in the temple, if you remember had the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee there is, is uh, un- unraveling his resume, right? When he's praying to God, actually bragging to himself about how much he had done, how much he had given. 
works. It was works. What the synagogue officials were most concerned about, folks, was losing their donor. That's what they were most concerned about. You wouldn't believe today how many churches will deem a man worthy because of what he has done financially. For the amount of influence that he has locally. For the power that he exerts socially. That's not an indictment of the one who gives the money. It's an indictment of us who who give preference to the ones who give the money. James 2 verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes to you in your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James says, but God has chosen the poor to be heirs of the kingdom, right? You might find that hard to believe. You might find this hard to believe. But the Jews had, had an extraordinary, extraordinarily enlarged view of people who had a lot of money. Glad we don't suffer from that today. The man with the money. They say, surely he is worthy. And you know, I appreciate looking at this, the heart of the centurion. And we get deeper into this and looking at at his heart and his expression because the problem isn't him or his money. The problem is the perception of the people about his money. They treat him differently. Wealthy are perceived as worthy because of their authority, their influence, their power, the money, what the money can do. Folks, that's a religion behaving like the world. That's the world. And honestly, it actually bothers most people with money who have a conscience. That bothers them. In fact, up in Fargo, Rita and I spent those years up there. We had a dinner with a new, new man who had a lot of influence in the area. Had some big businesses, uh, private jets, all kinds of other things. And, and uh, he was sharing with us on an occasion how troubled he was because he had visited a large church nearby. Went in, lots of people. We're talking at least a thousand, couple thousand people in this church. And so he went in, it was a big crowd. But upon the people recognizing who he was, they immediately summoned the pastor to come over and meet him. After which the pastor uh, insisted that he take him out to dinner afterwards. The man was troubled. He said, you know, I know that pastor doesn't do that for every other visitor that comes through the door on the first time. He was offended by that. Another person that I knew was actually a state official, and he had come, come from a background of money. I was just having lunch with him one day, visiting, and he was sharing how the fact of a, a local church had asked him to be on their board, though he rarely attended that church told me he knew the only reason they wanted him on their board is because his family had a lot of money. Folks, both of these men were unbelievers for all I could tell. Even they innately could tell in in a religious context, in a spiritual context, you don't give people preference because they have money. Even they knew that. 
There's nothing intrinsically wrong with money. As I said, oh, I'd love for someone to pay off our debt. I'd love even more if I never knew who it was. And they never asked for their name to be put on the side of the building. Why would anybody want that? People who are spiritual, they they don't want that anyhow. They don't want that anyhow. They just want to be anonymous. As Jesus said, let your giving be done in private. Why don't they want it, the spiritual people? They know they're not worthy. They're not worthy. Folks, none of us is worthy. None of us is worthy of the grace of God. The centurion gets this point right. He first sent the synagogue officials, the elders, the Jewish elders. I don't know for certain the motive of his second delegation that he sent. I can only speculate. I think that he understood that that first delegation, the Jewish officials from the synagogue, I think he he knew they were going to unpack his resume before Jesus. I think he realized that. And that's exactly what they did, right? It's exactly what they did. And I suspect that his conscience troubled him. And it drove him to send a second delegation. This time, only his friends the second time. Only his friends. And I think this best explains his change of heart in this whole situation in such a brief period of time, folks. Brief period of time. Jesus, according to Matthew, when the... Jewish elders approached Jesus. Jesus had already entered the city. What was that city? Six square blocks? The first time they approached, he'd already entered the city. Very small town. And, and, and Jesus started on his way with those Jewish officials to that home. So he couldn't have been far from the house or far from the original point that the, the Jewish elders met Jesus, when he sends the second delegation, there could not have been a large amount of time that elapsed. You know what I'm saying? He sent one delegation, and he thought to himself, no, I've got to send a second delegation. They said in verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. Representing the centurion, they said, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. There's no need to speculate because the centurion provides his own um, rationale in this text. He said, I sent my friends to acknowledge I am not worthy to stand before you. You shouldn't even come under my roof. Folks, what a testimony to his friends. I'm not worthy. Go tell Jesus I'm not worthy. What a testimony to the Jewish officials that were accompanying Jesus when those friends came up and say, no, the centurion says he's not worthy. He's not worthy. It's like Peter, you look back in, earlier in chapter 5 in Luke, he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Go away. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. As John the Baptist declared earlier in the Gospel, I'm not fit to untie the thong of a sandal. John the Baptist wasn't worthy. That's the right answer, folks. No one is worthy for grace. 
Is that, is that how you view yourself? Do you view yourself as not worthy? Or do you view yourself as worthy? The difference is eternity. No matter what you've done, how do you view yourself? No matter what you've given, who you've loved, what merits you have, whether you're a good friend or a good mother or good to anyone, Scripture says there's none good and we're not worthy. Uh, I look back at the first time that I went uh, on a team to a park to witness and I can remember this woman's face like it was yesterday. This is early on in, uh, in, after our conversion. And I walked up and I went with the diagnostic questions, you know, a scale to 1 to 10. You know, what do you think the odds are you'd get to heaven, you know, if, if you were to die today? Oh, yeah, probably an 8. I was wondering, oh, why are you scoring so high? She's like, well, you know, I've been a pretty good person. She had a church background. Not a great church background, but she had a church background. She'd, she'd been around. And... Uh, I said, so what would you say if you were standing before heaven? Why, why would you let me in here? And she goes, well, you know, I, I'm a good mother. I take care of my kids. I honor my parents and, and uh, yeah, this and that. And, you know, we live a good life, a clean life. All she started unfurling her resume. That's when I said, well, where does Jesus fit into all this? She said, well, well him too. <laughs> him too. Or just Him. Verse 7, it's going to demonstrate the centurion's view of Jesus, his reverence for the Word of God. You know, he, he must have learned, being around all these Jews and loving the nation. He, he'd been in cultural Judaism for a while, and, and uh, he must have read the Old Testament writings, at least some of them, or had them read to him. How there's no way to merit God's favor. You know, He had probably heard the... the the passage we read earlier from Habakkuk. Habakkuk um, chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. By faith God is a pro, opposed to the proud. He probably had read or at least heard stories about people like Rahab the harlot. Ruth the Moabitess. He probably had heard about the city of Nineveh. How God sent a prophet named Jonah to them. A man who spent three days and three nights in the deep. But then on the third day, came back to life and went in and preached the word of God. He probably had heard that. He would probably heard even of uh, an old Assyrian general. Remember the one Naaman. Who was leprous and came to Israel to be cleansed. To get right with God. Naaman the general. And all of these people folks were Gentiles. Gentiles who had been blessed through the God of Israel. Through coming to Israel. And, and after looking at all of these in a centurion. Hearing about how all these people came by faith. Naaman wasn't able to give the prophet money. He wasn't able to buy his way in. And, and, and he probably read as a centurion all these people, all these Gentiles, they've come from the east and they've come from the west. He said, there, there's got to be something in that Bible about me, right? Something there where I can fit in as a Roman. He saw it. He saw it in the Word of God. He saw it is by grace through faith. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. 
something in the Bible for each of us folks. Every single one of us here. He found it. He found it somehow. And long before Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, long before that was written, the centurion determined, neither I nor anyone representing me or anybody I know is going to say that I'm worthy. I'm going to declare it myself, I'm not worthy. He sets the record straight. This is just as the Apostle Paul employs the same passage in Habakkuk in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, while setting the same record straight. He goes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, right? For the righteous shall live by faith. Every single one of us, by faith. Surely the centurion probably didn't have a completed Christology. He hadn't written a thesis on the subject. Folks, the disciples didn't either. Look at some of the things that they'll still do. They didn't have it all together perfectly either. This centurion responded in faith according to what God had revealed to him through the word of the prophets and what Christ had revealed of himself as he walked the earth. What Christ said about himself. This, this wasn't the first day that this centurion had heard about Jesus. It isn't the first day. He already knew quite a lot about Jesus and the scriptures. He heard on that day that Jesus was nearby. My conclusion. You can decide whether you agree or not. We do know that he viewed Jesus as God's prophet. Prophet is a delegate, a representative, an ambassador of God, a spokesman speaking on the behalf of God. That's what a prophet is. Not just someone telling, telling what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. That's the weatherman. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. The centurion saw Jesus as speaking as a prophet, and Jesus was. And the centurion had this principle down pat. He understood this principle of sending a delegation or a delegate. And and he told his friends to tell Jesus, the centurion has a message for you. Just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. It's all he needed from Jesus. Say the word. What a contrast of faith that this Gentile has versus the most of Israel. Most of Israel. We'll get to that in a moment. Calvin writes, The Jews were excessively eager to obtain outward signs. The Gentile asks no visible sign, but openly declares that he wants nothing more than the bare word. This man asks no bodily approach or touch, but believes the word to possess such efficacy as fully to expect from it that his servant will be cured. Jesus, you just say the word. He believes his servant will be healed. On what basis? One basis, this alone, that when Jesus speaks, it possesses the same authority as his Father who is in heaven. Same authority. And in verse 8, the centurion explains, For I am also a man placed under authority. What was his authority? Rome. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. The centurion gets it. He knows who Jesus is. 
He uses a simile here, comparing one thing to another thing of a different kind. And in effect, he's saying, just as I exercise authority given to me from Rome, as I say to do this and that, so does Jesus exercise authority given to Him from heaven when Jesus says, the Word. That's all this man needs is the Word. Folks, he expresses a commanding faith that's not only in the omnipotence of God, not only in the power of God, also he he confesses the sheer, the, the, the utter inability for Jesus to err, the inability for Jesus to tell a lie or to mislead. When Jesus says it, it's done. It's the Word of God. You just say the Word. And in verse 9, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled and turned and said now to the crowd. He says to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I seen such a faith. Not even in Israel. The centurion's confession of sin, I'm not worthy, along with the preeminence of Christ, everything God speaks through you will come to pass. It reveals his heart. Reveals the centurion's heart. For with the mouth a person confesses, resulting in salvation. With the heart a person uh, believes, resulting in righteousness. And whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. What a picture of inclusion of the Gentiles. Right here, those who weren't a people being brought in as a people. Can we say amen to that? That's us right there, brought in by faith in Jesus Christ. The church being included in the grace of God. Jesus turned to the crowds that were following him, down from the mountain, and in effect, he asks them, just as this this scripture asks each of us today, asking every single one of us, are you practicing the religion of the Pharisees? Is it what you've done? Are you submitting a resume to Jesus of your works? Or are you practicing the faith of Abraham? The faith of Abraham of whom Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's faith. The centurion declared, I'm going to take the road of faith. I'm going to become a descendant of Abraham. I'm going to be like him. And the centurion displayed a lot of good works. Did a lot of great things. He built that synagogue. Just as Abraham displayed some powerful works. Willingly offered up Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. His own son as a sacrifice. Yet Romans 4 verse 2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about. Not before God. Nope. None of us has anything to boast of before God. There is no boasting before God. The prophet Jeremiah declares in chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord. That's the job of the prophet, folks. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, this is God speaking, 
that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writes, No man may boast before the Lord, but by doing... But by His doing, that's sovereignty again, by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Folks, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. That's it. Centurion slave healed immediately. He wasn't the only one who was healed. So was the centurion. Centurion was healed. All that he had done in building that synagogue, behaving as a benefactor to the Jewish people, all those things right there he had on his resume, packed his resume. First he thought that might kind of impress Jesus. He might be kind of impressed, but then he quickly came to his senses. And you know what really impressed Jesus? When that centurion took that resume of his and he ran it through the shredder. I will boast of one thing, and that is of the Lord. I am not worthy. Let's pray. Father, so often we think highly of ourselves and Lord, proudly think of all that <laughs> we've done. Lord, and we know you love our obedience. You know you love we know you love it when you when you see us obeying and and working for you and Lord using our our talents and our gifts that you gave us, Lord, for your glory. We know you love that. Father, what you love more is when we think little of those things and think much of Christ. How as he gave himself as an offering for our sin, that he died on the cross and uh, how He gave Himself completely for us. Lord, You ask us to boast in one thing, and that is the Lord. If anyone, Lord, amongst us, as we search our hearts and look inside, and Lord, ask that Your Spirit would reveal to us who we are and what we are, uh, if anyone here has started thinking about turning in that resume and... uh, and uh, holding on to the righteousness of Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do its work in uh, convincing that person that's exactly what they need to do. Trust in Jesus. Father, we pray for this church, for those who weren't able to come today. There are a number ill. Some have been in the hospital, Father. Uh, We pray for your mercy and compassion on them as we minister to them, that your healing hand will touch them. Lord, as, as our hand also with compassion touches them, as we restore them uh, to health, Lord, as you use the doctors, as you use love, all of it for your, uh, for your glory, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.